0: Friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Today, we have some great guests, as usual. We are very happy to have my TCA colleague, Ashley McGuire, with me to welcome Lewis Brown of CMF Kuro. He's joining us at the bottom of the hour. He and I were both speakers at a conference this past week called Congreso Provida that was put on by the Archdiocese of Miami. It was really a fabulous pro-life conference, amazing speakers from all over Lewis Brown uh, gave one of the talks. Before we turn to Lewis Brown, we will have a a dear friend of the show uh, join us, Father Ben Keeley. We want to ask him about Michael Nazir Ali, who was ordained a priest in the Catholic Church last weekend over there in England. He was an Anglican prelate. Father Ben attended that Mass. I really want to get his take on it, and I think all of us will enjoy hearing what he has to say about this rather important occasion.
1: Welcome to the show Father Ben. Thank you Grace. It's always great to be with you.
0: We love having you on. You are our our wise man over there in uh, England. And and you know the things that happen in England are important to us from the Catholic perspective and from other perspectives, but I think very much from the Catholic perspective.
1: Well, I hope so because we all sort of just about speak the same language slightly differently but just about. So we are the old old country in oh, some I ways. You were-
0: I thought you were going to make fun of us for our English, Father. You well, do you that don't sometimes.
1: Speak, you don't speak English as God intended it to be spoken. That is my joke. But, yes, uh, but I never heard. mind. We, we we put up with it. We put up with you.
0: And in Miami, we don't even speak English. We speak Spanglish, which I know drives that you is crazy. That is true.
1: Well, it's, it is like being in, in slightly in slightly a different country, but still, it's very enjoyable whenever I come and visit.
0: It's a great country. It's very close to the United States, Miami wonderful (laughs) we have all the first we have all the first world we have all the first world conveniences and the charm of the the third world so it's perfect you do
1: it's wonderful it's wonderful
0: father i wanted to i want to hear about the new catholic over in england michael nazir ali and he just uh converted he just had his uh his conversion ceremony it's not a baptism because he was always already baptized in the anglican church but you'll tell us about that but i want uh i want you to take a step back and and walk us mm-hmm. through the process of an anglican priest becoming a catholic and then a a Catholic and then a priest in the Catholic Church. There's there's a whole process and a whole history behind it. Could you you walk us through that, please?
1: Well, this is a very, very big conversion in the life of the Church in England, but also, I think, in the life of the worldwide Church because Michael Nazir Ali was not only an Anglican priest. Michael Nazir Ali was a bishop, an Anglican bishop. He was the Bishop of Rochester in Kent in England. Rochester, listeners will know, was the see of St. John Fisher, the great martyred bishop of Henry VIII. So Michael Nazir Ali decided he's been, he's a very prominent uh, theologian, bishop. I have a a piece, if anyone is interested, your listeners in the European Conservative, all about his conversion. And he'd been working for many years with the Catholic Church in theological dialogue and everything. And he'd come to the point, basically, where he felt that he was called into full communion with the church. And so he was received only just over a month ago. It's called reception because, as you said, he was baptized, and then he was actually ordained uh, this last Saturday. Uh, I was at his ordination. I'd just flown back from the United States and went straight to his ordination, which was a, a beautiful thing. He was ordained by the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, so he's now Father Michael Nazir Ali. But I've written in my piece, and some people might think it's hyper hyperbole, but I think he's one of the most important conversions in the life of the Church since Cardinal John Henry Newman, St. John Henry Newman, because, as I said, of who he is and his particular stature in the life of the church. He's also, his name, people might be thinking, well, that's a strange English name, Michael Nazir Ali. He's actually Pakistani born, but he's an expert on Islam. He's been working for many years with the persecuted church, which is how I got to know him. His father was a convert from Islam, a Shia Muslim who converted. So he's a very, very, very interesting man. And that's why I say for the life of the church as a whole, it's, um, it's a big deal.
0: But Father, I asked you something different. I, I'm really glad you told us all this, but I want to know... <laughs> Uh, we're very, Father and I are very close, so we're very close friends, so I can talk to him this way. You can
1: tease me, Grace. I yeah. can
0: tease you. So, when, when St. John Henry Newman converted to Catholicism, he left the Anglican Church, he became a Catholic, was received into the church, but then he went to seminary to become a Catholic yes. priest. Now, yes. there's a different mechanism going on afoot. Yes, there's something else right. afoot here. Explain to us this, this mechanism about the ordinariate and all that, because okay. most people, including me, are hazy on the details.
1: Right. During the, the reign of the lifetime of uh, St. John Paul II, he had what was called a pastoral provision, which was to allow married Anglican clergy to come into the church. And usually they did have to do some uh, period of, of uh, theological preparation, not, not usually as long, obviously, as uh, going to the seminary, because most of these men had already had many, many years of pastoral experience. Then the great gift to the church was Pope Benedict XVI, uh, created in 2010 what was called the Ordinariate. The Ordinariate is basically, the simple way of putting it, is like a super diocese, and there are three in the world, one in the United States, which covers Canada, etc., one in Australia, which covers New Zealand, that area, and then one here in Great Britain. And basically as I said, they're like a super diocese, but they were created to allow large numbers of ex-Anglicans, priests, and parishioners. I mean, a number of parishes came in. It was wonderful uh, that the place I help out in, the parish priest, two priests, and a large number of his congregation all came in together. And they also had to do some kind of theological preparation, but it was in different, ama- different amounts of time. Michael Ali, some people I've seen some criticism that the fact is he was received and then a month later was ordained, but you looking at the person. Um, this man, as I said, he'd been—he's uh, been a bishop in the Church of England for many, many years, decades. Highly theologically able, I would say that, that he's far more theologically educated than most of us Catholic priests, myself included. Um, and so, it was really taken on an, an individual basis. And he was actually prepared. We only discovered on Saturday at his ordination he was prepared he called it walked, he walked with me, was the Archbishop of Birmingham, England. So he had also the sort of highest authority helping him through. And I'm sure they talked, this this took actually about six months, the process. He was officially received over a month, just over a month ago, but the process was taking about six months. So altogether, I think it's, I, I don't think that you can anyway say it was rushed because the man is also 72. So, um. And is, is he married? Does he
0: bring, does he bring a wife with he's him? He's
1: married. He's married and two children, which is why he can't be a bishop. He, he in fact, I think all the bishops who've come into the Catholic Church so far through the ordinary have been married men, so none of them can be bishops. Most of them were made monsignors. The ordinary of England, my, as it were, my bishop, he's called the ordinary because he has the all the powers of a bishop who is the ordinary of a diocese. My ordinary, Monsignor Newton, is also married, but he has all the powers of the bishop. He is effectively our bishop but the ordinariate because you were asking really what is also what it is it's benedict pope benedict and i think it was a gift a real gift of to the church a to allow this large group to come in people who wanted unity with the church but also to keep some of what he called the anglican patrimony and pope benedict said this was a gift to the whole church in other words some of the gifts that the anglicans bring in is beautiful liturgy as listeners might think of the these and the thous of the King James Bible. We say our, our mass, which is called divine worship, uses the old language, the these and the thous. It's much more what you might call traditional. The priest faces the east. In fact, I think we won't get into some of these arguments, but some of the mm-hmm. some of the discord, perhaps, that's been caused recently about the Latin mass. I think if people experienced divine worship in the ordinariat, many of them would not actually really be seeking, if we want to call it division, I don't believe it is division. But my point is, people find it very, very moving, very powerful, very reverential. So that's part of the gift that, that Benedict said he wanted the Anglicans to, I, to I bring to the you. church.
0: I agree with you, Father. You've given us Mass in the yeah, divine worship just, form, I, and it does, it, it it elevates your soul the way the Latin Mass does. Because, you know, we we need, as human beings, to have a, a feeling of sacredness when we, when we approach the altar and and that that language really does um, lend itself to that wonderful feeling of set apartness by hearing the different language. My own daughter goes to an ordinary church in London. Yeah, she
1: goes to she goes to the church where Father Michael Nazarelli was ordained on on Saturday. No, where I, was I didn't know that. Warwick Street in Anglia. Yes, that, that's meant to be our cathedral. It doesn't technically belong to us. That's one of the problems the ordinary has in England that we we don't really have any property and we don't have any money. But where it's a beautiful thing. But yes, in fact, he spoke at the end. Father Michael spoke uh, after the bishop to just give a few reasons why he'd become a Catholic. But one of the things he said was that worship, that sense of the sacred, that beauty. And I, I, it's, as you've, you've, you've said yourself, you've experienced it, so you know what I'm talking about. But um, so the ordinariat is it's it's not necessarily overwhelmingly liked by some Catholic clergy and some bishops even, because I think some people thought, well, why don't they all just become Catholics and not bring any of that Anglican nonsense with them? But my point is, this was a gift from Pope Benedict to the church. He thought this was necessary, and I think in God's good time, right at the end of his talk, Father Michael said that one of the gifts we can bring is an English spirituality because our faith is incarnational. Uh, You're you're Cuban-American. There's a particular style. um, There's a particular style in uh, Italian-American worship or Italian worship. There's a particular style, just the way you live your Catholic life uh, because we're incarnational. And so... We have an English style as well, and that's perhaps been a bit lost in the last, say, 30, 40, 50 years. The English church in particular has been quite well known as being an Irish church. Um, But we have a gift. We have multitudes of saints from before the Reformation. The great saints, the Saxon saints, the Anglo-Saxon saints, the great names like Wilfred and Theodore and all these strange Anglo-Saxon names that people get their lips all messed up, trying to say, but a huge number of saints from from right back almost to the beginning of the church. And that's and one of have, the gifts that uh, we can have bring. you have fabulous
0: martyrs. I, I love reading about your, your Reformation martyrs. Wow. Uh, yes. They blow me away, and I And they think.
1: died. Mm-hmm. They died for what most of the men who've come into the ordinariat believe in. They died for the unity of the church. They died for the papal supremacy. And Monsignor Newton, the ordinary, said in his talk at the end of Mass on Saturday, he said to Father Michael, he said, how hard it's been for many of us for many of them, because I was a Catholic priest first, so it hasn't been hard for me, but for most of these men, think about what they gave up. These men were married men. They gave up their livelihood. They gave up their homes. They gave up their future. There was no guarantee they would be ordained. And so these men have made huge sacrifices, and Father Michael has made the same sort of sacrifice. Uh, he was a bishop. He had great prestige. He was, he was a member of the House of Lords while he was a bishop. He's not a lord now, but this is a sacrifice just like Cardinal Newman, just like Ronald Knox, Monsignor Ronald Knox, these men have given up a lot for the unity of the church. And so I think we should be very, very joyous about that kind of sacrifice.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Doctor Gracie Christie, and we're speaking to a great friend of the show's Father Ben Keeley, who's in England and telling us all about Father Michael Nazir Ali, a new and very prominent convert to the Catholic Church. Tell us more, please, Father, about about him being Pakistani in, in origin, what that means in England, what that means for the church and, and especially what that means for for the persecuted church.
1: Well, he was born just after the partition. As you know, the, the state of Pakistan, as it were, didn't exist. It was part of the British Empire, part of India, the subcontinent. And uh, when when Britain gave freedom to, to India, that state was created mainly for Muslims. So it's a, a hugely majority Muslim country. But there were Christians, Christian minority. And he grew up in, as I said, his father was a Shia Muslim who converted. Um, and then he... As it were, gave his allegiance to Anglicanism around the age of twenty, um, and then became the youngest Anglican bishop in the entire Anglican Communion. And then he his, his life was threatened. Pakistan is a very dangerous place, and it's become more and more dangerous for Christians. Oh wait, this was all his happening. Was this threatened. was
0: all happening in Pakistan.
1: Yes, he this was in Pakistan. The... He was a young. He was a young bishop. And uh, this was in the uh, 1980s, I believe. His life was threatened, and then the the, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runcie invited him to come to England with his family for safety and security, and they stayed, and then he had a stellar career here in England, as I said, ending up being made the Bishop of Rochester in Kent, which is not far from actually where I'm speaking to you now. Beautiful little cathedral, if you ever come to England, where St. John Fisher was, the, the saintly saintly bishop. And he was then, Father Michael, or Bishop Michael as he was, was then considered for the role of Archbishop of Canterbury. He was in the final two, you your listeners may not know the bizarre setup in England. There's no separation of church and state in England. The prime minister actually picks the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is so imagine your president picking the Cardinal Archbishop of, of New York or something. So, so Tony even, if, Blair, even if the
0: prime minister is not a practicing Anglican, he gets absolutely. to choose a leader of the church?
1: <laughs> it's quite peculiar. It's that is quite peculiar. Pecu- that's our, I thought that's it was. Fringe. I actually
0: thought it was the, um, the queen who did it.
1: No, well, technically she signs off, but... But Hmm. it's him. No, he's given a list. And Father Michael, Bishop Michael Nazirelli was in the final two. And Tony Blair picked the alternative, uh, Rowan Williams, who became the Archbishop of Canterbury. So that's another sign of how senior this man is, that he was the the leading contender to be Archbishop of Canterbury. Then he resigned early, quite young. In, in, I think, 2009, and has devoted himself himself since then to work for the persecuted church for training, helping, advocating. That's how I met him first. I've met him again a number of places. And uh, as I said, he's an expert on Islam. He speaks Arabic. So he's these gifts also, we're praying, will be used now that he's a Catholic in in a very powerful way for us.
0: Recently, you had an MP who was murdered. Uh, he was stabbed mm. to death. Amos is his last name i'm forgetting So david amos yes and he was it's possible and i and please tell me if i'm wrong it's possible that this was um uh an anti-catholic hate crime because of the i know nobody wants to say that out loud perhaps what connection do you see between these these two these two happenings the this this important well, prelate becoming catholic and this catholic mp being um stabbed to death
1: I I don't think it would be fair to say it was anti-Catholic, but it's certainly anti-Christian, anti... There's no doubt at all now the motivation of the killer, uh, although the news likes to keep it as quiet as possible. He was a Somali immigrant who, it's been treated as a terrorist incident. It was an Islamist terrorist attack. Oh, it is. It has been been accepted. Yes, that's been confirmed. He killed poor Sir David. In England, again, our, our MPs, members of parliament, have constituency meetings. They meet their... Their constituents, the people who voted for them very regularly, with no protection. Uh, Sir David was hap- having one of his normal meetings, which anyone can walk into, and this is why we're c- quite concerned about the security of our MPs. Um, and this man walked in with a knife and stabbed him, just like walking into perhaps one of your members of Congress, if they're in their district meeting people. He stabbed him, and, uh, and it's been proved that he is a, a, an Islamist. So I don't think Sir David was killed because he was a Catholic but he was certainly killed by an Islamist who views who views any Christian as a, a as an infidel so it's very tragic I didn't know him I know several people who did know him and he was a very good man very pro-life I think he was the father of five children anyway but he's been no consistently pro-life throughout his career people were were stunned by, by especially such a good good man being killed let alone any MP it's it's very shocking so we're in a there's an interesting link yes with with Father Michael now that, and Father Michael, I have to say, given his expertise and given his background, has been very firm in his speaking about the dangers of extreme Islam. He's written articles, he If he wasn't from where he's from, if you know what I mean, being Pakistani origin, people might label him with all these labels that Mm -hmm. they like labeling people with now. But it's rather hard when when he comes from the background that he comes from. So, uh, once again, I think he's a tremendous asset for us. to. He speaks the truth in love. There's no danger of him being... uh, As we say in England, backwards and coming forwards, he'll he'll tell, he'll he'll say it as it is. But in love, and he's a very very gentle and very very quiet man. I've never even heard him raise his voice. But he ponders, he thinks, and then he speaks. But he speaks uh, with the roar of a lion and not with a lamb.
0: Do you think that this um this this death, this sad death of 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 Sir David? Do you think that this is going to to wake up, maybe Christians in in England to to see some some dangers from allowing this radicalization of Islam and and, and also like the secularization of England, the, the lack of religious fervor in Christians, the lack of the lack of religiosity and and understanding of, of our of our our religion, our shared Christianity. Um, do you think that this uh, will have an effect?
1: I wish I could say yes, Gracie. I don't want to be depressive, but unfortunately no, I think it's uh, there, there's a real unwillingness to face the truth about motivations and there's always an appeal to some other reason um, and unfortunately even within the church and I mean the broader church both the Anglican and the Catholic church is that often there's an unwillingness to because we don't want to appear bigoted or again all the other words people use different phobes phobias um, they're not I mean when, if, if someone says I'm killing in the name of Allah uh, uh, Allah Akbar, and uh, they post a video. It's hard then to say they're 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 uh, mentally ill or they're 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 green environmentalists. Or no, they they've alleged they've they've said themselves why they're doing it. Um, but it seems that's the only thing that one can't talk about. You can talk about every, for example, very sadly five years ago, another MP was murdered. A woman MP. She was murdered by a right wing extremist. Uh, in England, and there was no problem. That was spoken about for weeks, months, the fact that the right-wing danger, etc., etc., whole all sorts of things were discussed about that, but anything to do with Islamic terror is always brushed over as much as possible. So, unfortunately, either it's got to get so bad. I mean, it's interesting, in Europe, where things have got much worse it's becoming much more open the discussion in france other countries where it's very very serious it, it's not considered taboo to speak about this but we are as you pointed out a very very secular culture that's also something perhaps listeners don't realize because they have a nice historical view of england with our churches and our literature and unfortunately we that's. Really, more of a v- of a veneer now. Um, it's an exterior. The interior is sadly very, very secular.
0: You always say to but me, "But it's a great mission for the church." You always say to me, "Father, this is this is not Trollop's England anymore, Gracie, <laughs> <laughs> because well, you know that I'm a big I fan." I know you're of a Trollope. big
1: fan, exactly. I, and that's the sad thing. I mean, it would be lovely if it was, but um, but I think also we have to be hopeful. This is a this is a call to the church to be who it's meant to be, unafraid. And perhaps we are a minority, but Pope Benedict was always talking about being a creative minority. Um, we don't have any glamour, as it were, anymore. We don't have any sort of rights, as it were, anymore. Um, even the established church, the Church of England, is is really losing, losing space, losing authority. So... Perhaps this, this is in the end in God's good plan. He strips away a lot. It's the perhaps the big biblical image of the vine being being pruned. We've been very severely pruned in England. And perhaps <laughs> we're going to be pruned even more. And prune. I'm I'm not a tree, but I would imagine being pruned is quite painful, having bits of you chopped off and limbs and things.
0: So I like, uh, I like the the image of the rough shaking, getting a rough shaking yes. as a tree and having all your dead bits fall off, and well, almost nothing and left. We,
1: We've maybe got a lot of dead bits, and I think most of them ha- have fallen off or are, are in the process of falling off, but,
0: but Father, in the I, end, in
1: God's good time.
0: I find Father Michael's uh, conversion a a very hopeful thing yes. in England. I find it yes. very moving, and I find if if anything can oppose—you can oppose a violent extremist ideology like— is, uh, Islamic extremism, um, you can't oppose it with secularism. You can't oppose it with a no. consumer, no. materialistic view of the world where everyone's just uh, trying to get a bigger piece of the pie so they can eat it and in front of their tellies, as you say in England.
1: Absolutely. Um, Absolutely.
0: But you, you can no, only oppose right. it by an ideology that's grounded in truth and, and moves the human uh, soul f- up towards God and not... Absolutely. Sort of across towards towards um, more materialistic. Uh...
1: No, you're 100% right, Gracie. I mean, I heard the news while I was in the USA, and I wrote to Father Michael. Yeah, uh, I think he was still technically Bishop Michael at that point, but I wrote to him saying, this has been just one of the happiest bits of news I've heard in years, because... It is. It's extremely, because he also comes in, interestingly enough, I didn't say earlier on, he comes into the Catholic Church not from what's called the Anglo-Catholic wing of the Church of England. The Anglo-Catholic wing of the Church of England, many people have mistakenly, perhaps tourists, have gone into an Anglican church and thought they've been in the Catholic Church because they've seen the ceremonial, etc. Father Michael, Bishop Michael as he was, comes in from the evangelical side of the Church of England, which is very gospel-based. So, yes, the answer, as you said, it is hopeful because he's coming in. He's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And it sounds odd, but we need some men like that coming into the church who actually believe what they are meant to believe and who proclaim it um, with strength. For example, he wrote a very prominent piece in one of our national daily papers a few months well, last year during COVID lockdowns opposing The locking of the churches. So he speaks, he speaks his mind. And I think this is a, this is a tremendous gift. We, we needed a bit of a boost, Gracie, I have to say, because things have been pretty rough. We've, we've been, we've all, everyone's, including in the United States, have had a tough time during COVID. But this is something that really should make everyone smile.
0: Well, Father, we're out of time, and I want to thank you for telling us uh, this good news from England and, and discussing it at length with us. Um, but before we sign off, please tell our listeners about your, your wonderful work with the persecuted Christians in, in the Middle East. Please, please plug your, uh, your wonderful ministry that you do.
1: Thank you, Grace. Well, you're always very kind having me on the show and letting me. We are N A S A R E A N N-A-S-A-R-E-A-N.org, helping persecuted Christians survive, but thrive in their own countries by mini financing, small family businesses and by my work as a priest preaching, teaching, writing, advocating, doing what I'm doing now as you let me do many times on your show. So thank you to everyone at the Catholic Association and you, Gracie.
0: Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We are very happy to have my TCA colleague Ashley McGuire with me to welcome Lewis Brown of CMF Kuro. Welcome to the show, Lewis.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Luis, I was really happy to catch up with you this past weekend. Luis and I were both at a pro-life Congress put on by the the Archdiocese of Miami called Congreso Pro Vida, and it was trilingual. I gave a talk in Spanish. Luis gave a fabulous talk in English, and I was so impressed uh, with what he was telling us, his audience, that I just had to have him on the show. So good to have you, Luis.
2: Great to talk with you. It was great to be with you and others in Miami and great to talk with you here. So these issues are very important and grateful for your show and your witness.
0: Oh, thanks. You work for the Christ Medicus Foundation, which is a healthcare entity rooted in the culture of life. And that gives you a very good, it gives you a very good view of healthcare in the United States, Uh, religious freedom attacks on healthcare in the United States, which which was the focus of your talk, which I thought that you you really nailed um, some very important things that are going on.
2: It's a gift to work for the Christ Medicus Foundation, as you said, you know, our mission is to really share the healing love of Christ in healthcare and empower other Catholic healthcare institutions to do that and empower individuals and families to do that as well. And then to defend our religious freedom rights to do that. But as we think about what religious freedom really means and why we're so concerned about these attacks on medical conscience, on religious freedom, you know, I think Pope Francis does a wonderful job, even if for those of of your listeners that are watching The Chosen, does a wonderful job of reminding us why do we care about this issue? Why are we concerned about religious freedom? We're concerned because we want to protect our God-given right to have an encounter with Christ. And we want to protect our God-given right to help others encounter that he who made them, he who makes them whole, he who heals them. And so that's why this issue is so important. It's not a tribal issue, it's not a power issue. It's an issue about having a world in which people can encounter God and have a nation built on love. And that's why I think this issue is so vital today.
3: Louis, I love the idea of a nation built on love. And you know I think it's become this really kind of radical concept. You know, I've heard you describe religious liberty as as the freedom to love And unfortunately, you, well, really both of you, because you both work in the medical field, understand um, just how much this is coming under attack. And I feel like one of the ways we're really seeing this happen is the way of. abortion is being pulled into the concept of healthcare and, and described as healthcare. And I think that's sort of a novel thing. You know, it used to be that it was just kind of this this thing we didn't really talk about that happened over here and these kind of windowless clinics, but um, really pro-choice advocates have become more emboldened and, and now they even describe it sometimes as abortion care. You know, how are you seeing this play out and what does your health share ministry, how do you grapple with that and the attempt to sort of merge abortion with with health care
2: right i think everything has to be founded in love of god and love of neighbor and and the the truth the reality of our god-given human dignity and so we know that as you said beautifully ashley abortion is not health care it is a child it's not a choice that women we all we all know this and we said this for years women deserve much better than abortion and that abortion is just the taking of an unborn life it's even if one is not a person of faith the science the biology is clear particularly with these technological advances we know that abortion has decimated the black community 19 million you know some projections around 19 million unborn black babies have been killed Uh, over 40 million other uh, babies have been killed it's absolutely absolutely devastating and that abortion is contrary to love it's contrary to love of a mother It's contrary to love of the child. And where we think where we're at as a society, there used to be, as you said, Ashley, a bipartisan kind of consensus that people shouldn't be forced to pay for it and people shouldn't be forced to do it. It's unthinkable, unthinkable to me, Ashley, that we have a majority in Congress in the House that thinks that legislation that would compel physicians to perform abortions is acceptable, is permissible in society today. So it's shown how far we've lost an understanding of human dignity and understanding of freedom and conscience and how much work we have to do.
0: In the medical realm, what we're finding is abortion seems to be almost just the first stop on the terrible on a terrible train track, because what we're finding is that there is this idea that there has to be perfect autonomy from each person, and that the healthcare field has to be there to uh, supply this, these needs of the personal autonomy, the personal liberty. Sometimes, sometimes personal liberty necessitates the taking of an unborn life. Sometimes it necessitates the removal of a perfect healthy organ, for instance, a uterus in a woman that wants to identify as a man. But in any case, the, the medical profession is being turned from a profession in which we are furthering the health and well-being and the flourishing of the human person into a kind of like a paid, just a paid position where we just go and do whatever the patient or the client. It's almost turning the patient into a client. What do you think of that, Lewis?
2: Oh, I think you're totally right. I think That there's a a loss of so much. There's an amazing article that I reference a lot, "Medical Conscience Under Dictatorship" uh, by Dr. Leo Alexander, published in the late 1940s in the New England Journal of Medicine. He was the war. He was the U.S. Army consultant to the uh, to the war crimes in Nuremberg, and he talked about the drip and the slippery slope of medicine in the United States. What we have to be careful about is a focus, an appropriate focus on the alleviation of suffering for everyone, and and I. Rooted out of love of neighbor which is good and true and is the way forward versus a creeping concept that he saw even in the 40s of certain lives that are not worth living uh, and therefore can be discarded essentially. And unfortunately, we've doubled down, uh, have rejected the warning that Dr. Alexander gave us in the late 40s, and we've doubled down on saying, well, we only want lives that are planned and perfect and prepared, such as those babies that are so, quote unquote, wanted and discarding those babies that that are not. This is why we, you know, we have to oppose abortion. We need pro-life legislation, and we need to overturn Roe v. Wade, but we also need Catholics, people of goodwill, to choose healthcare options, to support pro-life healthcare doctors, and to choose healthcare options like our CMF Care Healthcare Sharing option that divest out of the culture of death, that divest out of you know health insurance options that promote abortion, and invest into health insurance and healthcare options that promote life, and that's very, very practically important today, especially because of the the movement of uh, abortion throughout the healthcare industry.
3: Louis, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear more about that. And I, I especially want to hear more about what you think is kind of coming down the pipeline in terms of legislation. But just quickly back to the, the story about the doctor that you were you were talking about in Lives Worth Living, I just have kind of a, a personal anecdote that I think gives such a chilling account as to how far we've come in terms of a sort of cold, heartless society that doesn't see certain people as as uh, lives worth living. And that is when um, I was driving with my kids and waiting, or I got a call from my doctor um, with the blood work when I was pregnant with my fourth. And, you know, they do a range of tests and that's when they also at, at 10 weeks can tell you what the sex of the baby is. And she was kind of going through the checklist and she said, no, this, no, that no down syndrome. And, you know, hung, hung up the phone. And my daughter who's nine said, what's down syndrome? And I was just so struck by the fact that she She's growing up in a world where literally you don't see people with Down syndrome anymore because they've been eliminated. And when I grew up, it was a very normal thing. There was lots of people with Down syndrome. I knew people with Down syndrome. And, you know, it's amazing how much things have changed for the worse on that front. But, Lewis, can you tell us more about when you were describing, you know, insurance programs that are divested of of the abortion industry. Can you explain a little bit more what that means? And then also maybe can you give us a kind of like a forecast as to what our listeners who care about religious liberty and pro-life issues, what they should be watching and, and tuned into?
2: Yeah, thanks. Uh, and just a chilling story. And you're right. I mean, I just to go back on what you said, Ashley, you're completely correct. In the 80s, as a, as a kid growing up, we had our brothers and sisters who had Down syndrome all over the place, everywhere in the workplace, in school. And today, sadly, like so many of them are just not are gone. And we know why. But I think as to, to your other question, your several questions, I think there's a, there's a couple things um, that are happening. Um, sadly, abortion is being normalized, has been normalized in much of the healthcare industry. And Dr. Christie knows this much better than I would, but that's what I've seen. It's just been normalized within much of the abortion industry. And it's important that folks understand, that care about the unborn, that they understand that whether whether the unborn, we protect them and safeguard them, or whether we don't, it's dependent, I would say, chiefly on two things. Number one, is having a country where people know Jesus Christ. If people know Jesus Christ, abortion went into model. That's number one. Number two, on a natural level, that's the supernatural, on the natural level, abortion, whether we have abortion in this country or not, is largely, not entirely, largely determined by the kind of healthcare system we have. And so it does us, in my opinion, it's not good enough to it's important that we go to the march for life it's important that we march for life we got to do that everyone should go to the march for life this year big plug for march for life amazing organization (laughs) and locally we should go to the march for life 100 but if we come back home and we're paying into insurance plans that subsidize abortion if we're committing our tax dollars to state health care programs that subsidize abortion or chemical abortions not even just surgical abortion but chemical abortions what are we doing what are we doing it makes no sense and so, healthcare is a very personal decision for a family. And so, the Lord is the stewardship of of the health and well being of every family. It's a very very important decision. But it's important, as a friend of mine said, that Catholics have a truly Catholic worldview in every decision. The Lord is the Lord of everything. So, how can we make decisions in our own in the healthcare of our own families and the healthcare of our own businesses that further the culture of life? And so, as much as we can, we should be choosing to support and put our families and ourselves into healthcare programs, health care plans, whether it's insurance, or health sharing, or even direct care that furthers the culture of life, rejects abortion, that promotes care for the unborn, and that's why options like CMF Care, our healthcare ministry, other healthcare ministries that are free of abortion, other healthcare options that are free of abortion are really, really important.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague and co-hostess, Ashley McGuire, and we're talking to Lewis Brown. He's a pro-life powerhouse, a good friend of Ashley and mine, and he. He works for Christ Medicus Foundation that helps to offer true Catholic health care that doesn't infringe on anyone's conscience, on anyone's Catholic conscience. You, we talk about abortion, Lewis, but the dignity of life ethic informing health care touches upon uh, lots of other parts of, of medicine.
2: It's tough. I, I, the attacks on conscience and religious freedom in the healthcare space right now are the greatest they've been in modern American history. And I say that everywhere I go. It's just true. I think the sad reality is that faithful Catholic undergraduate students that are discerning the possibility of becoming doctors and nurses, faithful Catholic uh, medical school students that are currently in American medical schools are scared out of their minds. Mm -hmm. And and that's not even to get to those that are studying in the mental health field, those that are Catholic therapists, they're scared out of their mind. And because the culture is increasingly saying within the healthcare industry, if you hold these Catholic beliefs, your care is not wanted here. If you hold these pro-life beliefs, your service is not wanted here. We don't want you if you have views about human sexuality that are based on the scientific, biological, anthropological truths of the human person. We don't want you. And that's not just in the most left-leaning states. Uh, in the country, it's definitely in the right-leaning state. So I think of a Catholic physician who was forced out of her practice in Michigan because of her pro-life beliefs. I think of a medical student in one of the most conservative pro-life states in the country who was pressured by her medical schools administration because of her pro-life beliefs. I think of a Catholic, one of the top surgeons in the country at a public uh, state school, probably the best in his field in the state and one of the best in the country, who was investigated because of his Catholic beliefs. These things are abhorrent these things are contrary to the founding on human freedom and civil rights and civil liberties they're, they're contrary to religious freedom the sad thing is it's impeding the god given desire the god-given capacity of current and future doctors and medical professionals to love to, to to give of themselves through the healing profession of healthcare. it's also vitally dangerous for patients because if we strip love if we strip conscience if we strip love out of healthcare. What are we left with? Um, we're left with a throwaway culture within healthcare, care. And that's bad for everybody, particularly the poor, particularly the vulnerable, particularly persons with disabilities.
0: And love doesn't always tell, give you what you want. Love sometimes says, no, I'm not going to give you that right now because you think you want it. But it's a very bad decision for you.
2: That's right. I mean, I think that you can see that with the abortion, with the harm, the psychological, the mental, the psychological, the spiritual harm that abortion does to to mothers. well, uh, we also see this when it comes to issues around gender ideology. And gender ideology, particularly as applied to healthcare, is not only unethical, but it's actually harmful to the patient. There is zero scientific or even psychological evidence of the value of gender ideology, of gender transitioning procedures, in healthcare. If anything, it is harmful to patients. And even if it wasn't harmful, it's not consistent with the truth of things. It's not consistent with the reality of the human person based in the image and likeness of God and how they are just physically made. But even if it, even if that wasn't the case, there's not the scientific evidence. There's not the medical evidence that will always be the case. That's not going to change. And so we have physicians right now being coerced into doing procedures that they believe to be unethical and that are objectively harmful to their patients. And so, we had just yesterday dignity health is in a lawsuit that's been going for a couple of years the court of appeals in california said the lawsuit can proceed the supreme court decided not to touch it and there may be there i think the reason why the supreme court decided not to touch it was based on jurisdictional issues not on the underlying case but this is going on today in america and so we need to be aware and we need to take appropriate action to further the culture of life and to not allow these bad policies to go forward
3: louis i think we're almost out of time but what else can people do other than sign up for health sharing, health insurance through CMF CURO? What other ways can people, uh, what things can people do that are are concrete that further a culture of love and and a culture of life. The
2: power of having this, of bringing people in these Catholic medical centers that serve the the wealthiest of the community and serve some of the poorest, bringing them into the womb of Mary, so to speak, so that they can be loved, body, mind, and soul is very powerful. If we had 200 of those across the country, I believe the country would change. So I think that's another practical thing, to discern is to launch a clinic locally. And then the last thing I say is support your local Catholic hospital, support your or a Catholic physician practice that subsidy and that solidarity in your own health care. If I can say 30 seconds, a friend of mine had quadruple bypass surgery after having a heart attack about a week and a half ago. And I was able to visit him at St. Francis in Long Island. And the care that he got there was amazing. And the comfort for him, I believe, of having a crucifix in his ICU room and having the Blessed Sacrament on the first floor really mattered. And so supporting these Catholic health institutions is really important. And that will be true for the rest of our lives.
0: Well, thank you, Louis, for your beautiful words and for your inspiration. And and I hope that our listeners will take all this into account and and step up the fasting and the rosaries and see if we can salvage healthcare for the culture of life. If people want to hear, want to read more about CMF Curo, they can go to cmfcuro.com to read about healthcare fully alive. Thank you, Louis.
2: Thank you so much, Doctor.
0: And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
4: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the Risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. Last week, you remember, Jesus told us clearly what the first and greatest commandment is, the most important thing we have to do in life, to love God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength. Love, as we know, is more than merely words and feelings but is shown in deeds. Love is choosing to act for the good of the other, sacrificing ourselves for the sake of someone or someone else. In this Sunday's Gospel, Jesus presents us with a standard to help us to determine in our concrete circumstances whether we are really trying to love God with all we are and have. After Jesus had finished his formal teaching in the courtyard of the Temple of Jerusalem, he began to people-watch in order to instruct his apostles about how to put what he was teaching into action. They saw the stream of people depositing money into the Temple treasury, which is a large tuba-shaped receptacle leading to a secure money box. People would put their coins in the horn at the top, which is like a funnel, and then the sound of the coins would resonate as they rolled down the metal tubing into the box. Many rich people, St. Mark tells us, were putting in large sums and making a lot of noise in the treasury tuba. But then a poor widow came and put in two lepta, two small coins that together were worth about a penny, and likely barely registered a sound. Jesus gave a surprising lesson that the disciples obviously never forgot. Jesus praised the poor widow rather than all the rest, saying she had contributed more than all of them. For they, he said, gave out of their surplus, but she gave everything she had, all she had to live on. This widow, because of her poverty, could easily have been excused for giving nothing. She could have justly chosen to drop into the tuba only one of the lepta and kept the other for herself. But she gave all, and her generosity was praised by Jesus and will remain famous until the end of time. What could have moved her to give to the temple even what she needed to survive? There's only one reason, her deep faith. She believed not simply that God exists or that He worked various miracles in the past to help her people. She believed so much in Him and was so convinced of the importance of what was going on in God's house that she wanted to dedicate her life and all her goods to continuing and expanding it. She accounted the continuance and expansion of that saving work as worth more than even her own life. The truth is that the stronger our faith, the more willing we are to trust in God and sacrifice. The more we love God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength, the more we will give of ourselves and what we have to the advance of his work. The first apostles we know moved by faith in Christ, left fishing businesses and lucrative tax collection seats to follow Christ, even though they would have, like Jesus, no bread, no money, no bags, no change of clothes, and no place to lay their head. The early Christians, as we read in the Acts of the Apostles, used to sell their property and lay the proceeds of the feet of the Apostles in order to share with those in most need and to advance the proclamation of the Gospel. But we don't have to go back 2,000 years to Palestine to come up with such, such examples. We can think about the building of so many parishes in the United States Like three of those where I was assigned in Massachusetts, where poor immigrants offered to God not only sizable portions of their paltry paychecks, but also so much of their elbow grease, coming before and after work to assist the hired masons, engineers, and architects in order to save the parish money, so that more of what the parish raised could be spent constructing God's glory a church far more beautiful. The church in the United States was not built by rich people putting in large sums, but by poor immigrants forsaking savings and going without vacations in order together to build something worthy of God, something that expressed their faith, something that made concrete that they loved Him more than they loved even themselves. It's important that we have a consequential conversation with the Lord about how we use the money and resources of which he has made us stewards. Like the widow in the gospel, Jesus wants us to be able to be praised by him for our generosity. This is not just an economic issue on the basis of which parishes, schools, and other church institutions will be maintained, survive, and thrive, but far more importantly, a moral issue, since, as economists tell us, how we spend our money is a sign of what we value. The great biblical Commentator William Barclay commented on this gospel scene, Real generosity gives until it hurts. For many of us, it's a question if our giving to God's work is any sacrifice at all. Few people will do without their pleasures to give a little more to the work of God. It may well be a sign of the decadence of the church and the failure of our Christianity, that gifts have to be coaxed out of church people, and that often they'll not give at all unless they get something back in the way of entertainment or goods. There can be few of us who read this story of the poor widow without shame. Today's gospel teaches us that it's not so much the size of the contribution that matters, but the sacrifice that the giving entails. With a little trepidation, I'd like to get into some numbers because it's an important topic not only to the faith of individual Catholics, but to the survival of Catholic institutions. Pre-COVID, the average Catholic adult in the United States was giving 0.7% of his or her annual income to the Church. Less than 1%, which equals about $122.59 a year, or $2.36 a week. The average Catholic household, all members in a home combined, gives 1.4% of the annual income to the church. This is one-third to one-half of what Protestants give to their churches and Catholics in the northeastern United States where have served and where there is in general more education and a higher standard of living are by far the least generous of all Catholics in our country, giving about one-third less than our Catholic brothers and sisters do in every other part of the nation, including areas where most of the mass goers are recent immigrants working under the table or near minimum wage. It's simply a fact that the majority of adult Catholics give less to the Church than what it costs for a coffee at Dunkin Donuts or Starbucks, less than they pay for a subscription to the daily newspaper, and way less than they pay each month for cable. The point I'm trying to make is that the relatively small value and priority that many Catholics, by their economic choices, give to the mission of the Church, is one of the principal reasons why the Church in the United States is suffering, even in areas where church institutions can easily pay their bills and care for the needy. The reason is, as Jesus tells us elsewhere in the Gospel, because the measure with which we measure will be measured back to us. In other words, if we give generously, we will receive generously. But if we give sparingly, as St. Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, we will receive sparingly. This isn't because God withholds his graces from the stingy as some form of punishment, but because the human heart is a two-way street. If a person's heart is open and generous, then it's capable of receiving from God the blessings God wishes to give. If it's tight and miserly, on the other hand, then very little of God's grace will be able to penetrate it. We cannot serve both God and mammon if we're even partially trying to serve mammon, because that part of us serving mammon will atrophy in its receptivity to God. We see this encapsulated in the episode of the rich young man in the gospel. He came to Christ and asked him the most important question anyone can, how to inherit eternal life. The Lord told him to keep the commandments and then listed them. But the rich young man replied that he had kept all of these since his youth, yet realized that he was missing something in order to be happy. The Lord looked on him with love and said that if he wished to be perfectly happy, he needed to go, sell all that he had, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come follow him. At that, the rich young man's face fell to the ground and he walked away sad. Faced with the choice between Jesus and his money, the rich young man chose his money. Why are we sad because money can never buy happiness? In the same way, if we wish to receive the fullness of the grace that Christ wants to give us in this life and the next, then we, unlike the rich young man, need to detach ourselves from our possessions, from our money, and devote them for the sake of his kingdom. We see this in the lives of so many young people who enter the priesthood and religious life, working for little or no pay at all, because they're working ultimately for God. We see it in so many Catholic families who, despite all their bills, sacrifice their time, gifts, and material blessings to build up the kingdom of the one who is given given them everything. We see it in those Catholics, rich or poor, who sacrifice to extraordinary degrees to build up the church and to care for those in need. On the other hand, if we, like the rich young man, continue to want to grasp onto our money and stuff, then it's likely that sadly we will walk away from Jesus crestfallen, for it's only in giving that we receive. In this illustration of the importance of generosity, Jesus, like in all his lessons, never merely said, Do what I say, but always follow me. Today's encounter with the poor young widow was sandwiched between last week's instruction on God, loving God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength, and next week's prophecy about the last days. Immediately afterwards, St. Mark moves to the Passover, the Last Supper, Jesus' crucifixion and death. In other words, this teaching about generosity is enveloped between Christ's teaching about total self-giving love and His putting those words into practice on Calvary. And Jesus is calling us to give not just what is extra, but what is essential. He's telling us to love As he is loved, he gave his life in exchange for ours, valuing us more than he valued himself, as he comes this Sunday to strengthen us to do this in memory of him. We ask him to make us as generous as he is, to open our hearts fully to the gift of his grace, so that we and many others we might be able to help encounter him through our generosity might experience his happiness in this world and forever with him in the next. God bless you all.
0: Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at CatholicPreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers